Good morning, people. Yeah, you hear the cars, that's right. I'm going to get off the main road in a second. But I felt inspired today. And I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, uh, through the hog story, <coughs> through No Agenda Show, which is through, for me at least, through the uh, Linux Link, the Linux Link uh, tech show, and through open source. I have a new listener and possibly a new collaborator. Um, more about that in a second. But uh, <clears throat> I just want to clarify some stuff here. I saw Joe Ressington's post the other day. He's like, if you're not willing to edit your podcast, then I'm not willing to listen. That's the deal. It's like, okay, Joe, I understand. I understand you don't want to listen to my noise. And um, that's totally acceptable. <clears throat> and uh, I can understand that. You know, if I don't want to put the time in to give you jingles and like a format, you know, the entertainment that you have come, you've come to expect from the entertainment industry, if we're not willing to do that work to entertain you, then you don't want to be entertained. And that's fine. So, this show is not about being an entertainment show. This show is about expressing ourselves in some way that is raw, uncut, and natural. And we just um, kind of record our random thoughts as they appear. And it's like a performance art, you could say. Uh, you know, we're like the black square on the black background. And eventually, eventually we will do some post-production. And that will be season three. So when we take our episodes from season one, which are raw and uncut, and we go back and edit them, guess what? They will be season three, and then maybe you can just listen to season three, or we'll rebrand it as a new podcast, and we'll put some jingles on the front and the back, and some intros and outros, and give it some kind of structure, and then maybe someone else would want to listen to this entertainment package. But that could be years down the road. Because for now, ain't nobody got time for it. Um, I go for my walks in the morning. This is my exercise. This is when I have time to record. I'm working all day. <clears throat> I have my other projects that I'm working on. I can tell you all about them. So this introspective project I've been going on and on and on about for the past 20 years making very good progress on that. <clears throat> and it's really the question of, can we take a data view into computing? And what is the structure of a program? And how do programmers structure their data? And what can we learn from just looking at it? What can we learn from looking at it? and what can be automated. And um, <clears throat> yeah, yesterday I made some good progress on that in the morning before work. Um, first I worked on enums, enumerated types, and now I'm working on record types. I've gotten a list of record types and their fields. And they even have the recursive type definitions for the field, so now I'm kind of figuring out how much I want to display in what order. And uh, <clears throat> I'm hoping that my ordering algorithm will put them already into the right order. And also I'm working on weighting them so I can show like what parts of the code are used the most. 
but I'm slowly getting to a point of understanding. And I think that this, uh, I've been focused, I guess, for one year on one file of the Linux kernel, and it might actually uh, be ready to look at more. We'll see. So eventually we're going to get to the point of, um, I hope, um, being able to show relationships, different interesting relationships between items in the code. For example, we have now um, the scope relationship or reverse scope relationship I added in. So these are the fields inside of a struct. These are the labels inside of a function, like jump points. These are the parameters to a function. Um, these are the constants inside of an enum, and they're all treated as an array. So that's working out these reverse relationships. So I'm really quite happy with that. And I'm hoping to show other relationships that are more complicated, like this code here generates code over here, or encodes instructions which are then interpreted. Those are the type of relationships I want to be able to find, at least discover them and document them. Yeah, and then I was running this on some munge data from the compiler itself. So I'm basically not looking at the source code directly, I'm looking at the source code from the view of the compiler. I did take a quick peek at the code. Um, but I want to see what we can understand from inside, therefore the intro specter, the seeing from the inside. So that's the whole idea. Like, what can you do by observing from the inside the flow of data through some structured system that's coming in from outside? What models can we learn? Internal models. So how's that for a stream of consciousness? So, um, yeah, let me introduce myself. So that was a little bit of a deep dive into... Uh, stuff I've been thinking about. I have to get that out. <clears throat> so I started off with open source software. Originally, I was not an open source person. And I guess you could call me greedy. And it might have been just a profit motive in the beginning. Like, shit, this stuff is free and I can use it. So, um, yeah, it's been a battle ever since between the, um, the shifting shape of the uh, open source software and um, basically it's war on users. So, open source is open source, free software is free software, and basically the idea is that there's no restrictions on usage under the, that's like the four foundations of freedom. You can use it however you want, like that's a sim single, simple principle of the uh, GNU project, the GNU manifesto, whatever, the four freedoms, the freedom to use as you want, the freedom to modify and distribute, to study and learn. So, but there are restrictions, and those are the restrictions that limit the users and how they can use it. And, um, well, the major one is, <clears throat> if you incorporate a piece of GPL code 
into a larger work, you can therefore infect it, say, they could say, um, and cause it to become part of the GPL work, or at least have the license affected. So if you link or distribute the two together, then you can cause that so-called infection. And that's why, like Audacity, won't distribute lame uh, DLLs with it. They'll have a downloader to download it and install it, but they won't distribute it directly because of the licensing. Okay? And OSM AND is um, my uh, current target for annoying licensing, and I'll tell you about that. So OSM AND is a little replacement for Google Maps. It uses OpenStreetMap, and it's GPL'd version 3 plus non-commercial Creative Commons icons, plus some proprietary. That's what it says in the license.txt in the repository. But on the website, it says something different. In the license.txt, it says you're, it's free software, you're free to redistribute it as you wish. But then somewhere else on the website, they say you're not free to redistribute it as you wish. You have to get written permission from them to put it in the App Store or put it in the Google Play. And I think that's a contradiction because if it's free to redistribute, then redistributing it on the Play Store would be granted. And now my task now is to determine if that is a valid claim or not. And I'm thinking it's not valid, first of all, because the license.txt where you would expect to find the license does not make that statement. It's just a mess. And the threaten, threatening of redistribution is happening on a different spot so that so that it's not really the license. And I hope that I could show or find a version of the source code that does not have these weird threats in them and then fork it from that point. Um, I'm hoping, and I, I haven't done that research yet, to find out where exactly this uh, threatening language is introduced and where does it live? Does it live in the source code? If it's not in the source code, then I think it can be completely ignored. Um, because you have to make your decisions on the program based on the source code that you received. Um, and not based upon reading random websites that uh, even official websites that tell you that the license is not even valid. Otherwise, we could say that the license is invalid totally. Um, but I'm willing to fight with this guy over it. And I have different tools. Um, at my disposal to either rewrite parts of it or repackage parts of it. Let's say we create an app in the App Store that doesn't have his code in it and we just download his code uh, from compiled from another. So let's talk about that for a second. If you put your stuff on GitHub, you grant people the right to fork it. It doesn't matter what your license is. It doesn't matter if it has no license. If your code's on GitHub, then you allow people to fork it and distribute it. Period. So it doesn't matter what you write. 
If it's on GitHub, it can be forked and you lose control of it. That's what's in the GitHub's terms of service. Some people don't know that. Um, there's an Ethereum client that has the same issue. They're like, oh, you can't make a, oh, a copy of this, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you put it on GitHub and we can fork it, and yes, we can. So, if we fork it on GitHub, according to that right, it doesn't matter what they say on their website. That doesn't grant us additional rights, but it grants us the right to publish binaries and have them downloadable from GitHub. So, um, if I create a web app, a smartphone app, let's say, based upon a website that displays the routing and interacts with this binary, and then I fork his project, publish the binary on GitHub, and then the web app will just download that binary and execute it inside of the app so that his binary is not being distributed on the Play Store, then I can also get around his crazy requirements there, saying apps that contain this code must require request written permission because we're not going to contain the code. We don't need your written permission. And it's things like this that give open source a bad name because people are not, people are struggling to use OpenStreetMap. It's a great project. Um, but this OSMN, he's like, oh, well, you can, down, you can do three downloads or six downloads or whatever, and then you have to pay me money. You have to pay money for all these up, other updates. So it's kind of like a predatory system where to actually use it usefully, you have to pay him money. And um, you can't just fork it. He doesn't want you forking it and removing those restrictions. Right? It's going to threaten you. And they've been doing this for 10 years and getting away with it. Well, I used OSMN for the first time um, in anger when I was upstate New York. I had no internet. I went to some parking lot in Walmart and I downloaded OSMN. I downloaded the data for New York. I was able to use it. And um, I'll tell you what, I was pretty upset with the guy. Because these are the peop these are the things that keep OSM from being um, these are the things that keep OSM from being widely used, and we have to uh, stop that. And um, if the funding model is broken, then the funding model is broken. Um, well, then stop contributing your sources back. Make a proprietary app, and don't call it open source. You know. So I think it's worth a fight, and um, there's other uh, apps that have those icons in them. There's uh, Wikipedia, etc. We're talking about a uh, and also I think that we can come up with some um, machine learning tools to create icons. To be honest. or we can hire people. Um, <clears throat> so, and then uh, we can also put it in the F-Droid uh, app store or have it downloaded from the um, website. So there's lots of different ways to get around this um, and I'm, gonna look a, I'm looking to pick a fight on this one. Um, because it just makes me so angry. Um, it's not I'm angry he's trying to make a buck. It's the way he's doing it. Okay. It's the fact that he's taken, you know, this uh, license... And I'm assuming, I'm assuming that he's also used GPL code. I haven't reviewed all the code. I don't know if he wrote every single line of it. But if he's taken the goodwill of the community, which provides him with the GPL code, provides him with the libraries, infrastructure, the open source community, the data, everything, 
and then he's decided to twist that into a um, twist that into a profit-making enterprise. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Like I've got a day job, and it is using open source, but I'm not really publishing open source from my work. And uh, not everyone gets to do that, okay? And not every company has the business model to produce open source software. It doesn't make sense for every company, okay? If you're the garbage truck company, not all of the stuff that you do is going to be open sourced, okay? Like, you might develop some fleet management system or something, and maybe you could open source that. But is it really... <clears throat> do you really want to put the work into that? I mean, sure, you could just open source the garbage that you produce, but what's the value of that to everybody? So, I'm just saying that... Uh, not everything, not everyone is in the position to produce open source work for their job. And nor do they have to. But if they want to, they can. It's a business decision. But to put the cart before the horse and say, well, I want, I want to make this my livelihood and be an open source developer and get paid for it. Well, that's a tough proposition. And not everyone gets to do that. And then to make money on uh, maintaining the software and developing the software or providing services, it's not easy. And eventually, you might have to get into scarcity, like restricting your users again. And that's exactly what they're doing. So they're violating the principle of openness, right? By restricting the users, removing the freedom of use, for profit. And that goes against the, the first principle, the freedom to use. And I have to say, there's been a little discussion on the Introspector project with the Free Software Foundation on this exact point because they also want to restrict how you can use the compiler. And I'll break that down for you. So basically, the compiler produces abstract syntax trees, where it, it ingests your program and holds it in memory. And at any point in the program, if you stop the compiler and look at the memory, that memory structure will contain your code mixed in with the code of the libraries, mixed in in a format that is created by the code of the compiler. So the compiler code itself creates data structures, when those data structures contain either your code or library code in them, or built-in code. So it's a little bit of a mix between at least three different sources. And um, now, if you want to use that structure to, let's say, do something with the code, let's say, extend the compiler and use that compiler's data for your purposes. That's where the FSF and Stallman gets his knickers in a knot and says, well, we believe in freedom of use, but not if you use it the way you want to use it. We want you to use it the way we want you to use it. Right? You can only use it if you have a GPL-licensed uh, code. These are the plugins. The compiler plugins have to be GPL licensed, supposedly, and return a license string and tell the compiler that they're GPL. So, I reject that um, around the idea of the four freedoms again. And this is where we get into the control of the code versus is it the coder the programmer who's in control of the usage, or is it the user who's in control of the usage? And who gets to define what the role of the user is? Okay, well, if the user is the hacker Mike, a hacker, and hacker in the terms of someone who's able to make creative solutions um, to problems, 
right? If I'm the user, then you better watch out because I can come up with creative usages of your code that are unintended and do things that you didn't actually want me to do. Okay, so unintended usage is still covered by the freedom of usage. Right, and this is where we get into the um, the criticism of liberalism, where you know the open source community in many times wants to be liberal and grant all of these things, but they have a certain structure, certain structuralism, and they say these are the roles, these are how we intend it to be used, these are how the people are supposed to behave, and if they don't behave that way, then um, things fall apart. Okay? And, um, and in the end, Stallman and other people will become anti-liberals or authoritarians. If you don't act the way they, they want you to act, then they will become authoritarians and try and force you to act that way, okay? Breaking the rules that they originally set out, becoming hypocrites, right? And that is what we saw, unfortunately, by a very nasty person, Carl Schmidt. But um, I was listening to the philosophize of this podcast. He was talking about, you know, the criticism of liberalism. And he put it, he really just defined it like that and said... You have authoritarianism, and then you have liberalism, which is, it pretends not to be authoritarian. But in the end, it becomes authoritarian in the crisis, so that you're just pushing off and pretending that you're not authoritarian. So, in this case, these open source tools pretend that they're uh, liberal, but in fact that they are in the end, authoritarian, and they violate their own principles, and that's the world that we're in, okay? It's not pretty, and we can find lots of examples of this in all the different open source projects where people are people, and they want to be liberal, and they want to be open, and they want to share, but in the end, they can't, because they have to feed themselves at the expense of others. And that's the conflict that we're in. Okay. So I take a more libertarian perspective on open source, I think, where um, I think it's okay to make a profit and you share what you want to share. And if you want to share something and it makes sense for you to share it, then do that. And if you want to make money and you want to exclude people, and they choose to do that with you because you're providing them some kind of service or whatever, then that's also fine. Right? Like, we choose to use Google Maps because it provides a better service than OpenStreetMap in many ways. Um... And we take in consideration that they're spying on us and collecting our data, etc., etc., etc. But that's the price that we pay. That's the agreement that we enter into with them. Right? And then they show us advertising, which is totally irrelevant. And they take money from people who are willing to pay to have their ads shown to people who don't care. Okay? To get clicks. To buy clicks for $5 a click. Or they're not going to buy anything. I mean, that's what people pay for a click nowadays. It's like $1, $2, $3, $5 a click. So, So there you go, um, and I think that there is a case for open source, and I also put out my case for um, Wikipedia, boy that's loud, 
they're doing the roof there or something. I hope you can even hear me. Let me try to go around the back of this building here. My case for the Wikipedia. is that we know that they're being run badly. They have bad governance. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, difficult project. They started out with a profit motive. They have their wikia, which is actually what they want, wanted to produce. And it's pretty good for some games. And Wikipedia is what was created by the community, and in the end, it is reinforcing the existing biases and whatever. There's a lot of politics in Wikipedia. But as I stated before, you have to look at Wikipedia as a collector of data, and it's collecting edit revisions. Even if those revisions are not visible, you still have them, and that is valuable. The data being collected by Wikipedia shows both sides of the argument. They're not deleting the edits that are removed. They're still in the edit history. Now, they are deleting articles, and that's a whole different story. And I, I ran a project called Speedy Deletion Wiki to collect deleted articles, and I ran into all types of issues. And I can understand why they delete articles that are not notable, and that their notability criteria is just passing it off on the New York Times, which is questionable, but they need to pass the buck because the people are so savage, and I, you get letters and threats and phone calls, and people are just going crazy about Wikipedia articles if you undelete them. They say, you delete this article! So, if you store deleted articles, they, some people really want them deleted, and you don't know how to vet that, you don't even know who these people are, right, um, etc. So really, it's a intractable situation. You're opening yourself up to liability. You're opening yourself up to attack on all different levels. And you need to have some stupid criteria to um, determine and just say, yeah, well, you're notable, and we can write about you. Now, for Gary Knoll, I mean, that article on him is really bad. Um, and, uh, I enjoy listening to Gary Knoll. I think he's a radical. He is, um, definitely an angry person. But I do enjoy, and he does also self-aggrandize. And like, oh, I did this and I did that and I'm so great, right? Like, pats himself on the back too, a little bit too much for my opinion. But I'm sure he's done a lot of great stuff. It's hard to determine that. If you just look on his websites... All you see is vitamins for sale. You really can't figure out anything. It's a big mess. Like, he talks about all these vitamin protocols on his website, and I try and look, like, what exactly he's talking about. And I really, um, I find it very difficult to navigate and very difficult to find out what the hell he's talking about. So, yeah, his websites are pretty bad. He does appear to be a scammer, spammer, or whatever. He doesn't appear very seriously on the web. But I'm also sure that he's right that the medicine, alternative medicine, is not getting a fair deal on Wikipedia. And articles may be deleted. It's possible. Now, he wants his article deleted. And actually, I don't think it should be deleted. I think it needs to be um, reviewed. And uh, as I said, proposed, we should have a way to show multiple sides of the argument and um, to show the different biases of the different editors automatically using machine learning. So... I don't agree that he should be deleted. I think he wants to be deleted because he's being portrayed in such a bad way. Um, 
but he is a notable person, and people do have the right to uh, to um, know about him. I mean, he's on the market, he's selling stuff, he's making health claims in some form or another. He's saying that he cured AIDS and cured all these people and helped all these people, and people want to know about it. And um, if his websites are so bad and not a, you're not able to figure anything out, what's wrong with having a third-party system that writes about people according to certain rules that you can actually read and get information quickly? And, um, and you can learn a lot from, about um, things by becoming a Wikipedia editor. And even if you have to submit to these the mainstream bias, you can learn about no primary sources, which I think is very good. So Wikipedia says that you're not allowed to have primary sources, you only have secondary sources. So you're not allowed to take first-hand evidence. You have to wait until someone writes about something, and then you can take it. Now I can tell you why this is a good idea in life as well. And they also say no original research. So Wikipedia is not for doing original research. It's for, for collecting research done by other people that's notable. So, and that will necessarily give you some kind of bias, of course. And you could say that Wiki, that, uh, you could say that uh, encyclopedias embodies a certain bias. Well, they're biased against original research, they're biased against small and up-and-coming uh, things, and they're necessarily not able to discern. They're just passing the buck um, on the criteria to other third parties, which are establishment. Right? So if you say the New York Times is your decider, your arbiter, and they're necessarily biased in some way, then obviously your whole system is biased, period. If you say that it has to be notable and has to be published, then you're passing the buck again to the publishing systems. So you can't say that Wikipedia is not biased. It's biased by definition. It's pro-establishment, and it's biased by its external criteria, and it's not able to support itself It's not able to support itself fully. It's not able to decide on its own what should be included or what not should be included. It just pushes that off to the existing establishment. <clears throat> and that's fine. Because what else are they going to do? Hire a staff of arbiters get involved in legal disputes with people all the time. Now Gary says that he has trapped them and trapped them organizing attacks against him. And that's good. If he can trap these people in being totally biased and in trying to remove information about health, I think um, that's good if he can get that rolled back. And then also, I'm assuming all the articles that they, these people propose to be deleted about small health things, uh, maybe those should be um, undeleted as well. And uh, if we want to create a better system, we have to create a better project which has different inclusion mechanisms. And we should consider what are those mechanisms? What are the rules for inclusion and if you don't want to pass it off to the New York Times, then, you know, who are you going to pass it off under? Who's going to be your arbiter? So these are some things to discuss. I want you to think about. You know, I have a different viewpoint on a lot of stuff. I hope this recording uh, turned out well. I hope the audio was good enough that you can understand me. And I hope you have... I hope you have a great day. Let's see if this recording worked. Let's pray to the gods of podcasting. Oh, it's still recording. 39 minutes. Okay, guys. Have a great day. Hello. 
This is Mike from the Stream of Random podcast, <clears throat> which is basically a very random podcast about many different topics where we talk about whatever comes to our mind. Um, <clears throat> I have started to reduce the amount of spread of topics on individual podcasts because some people find it listen hard to listen to completely random topics and they actually want to listen to one topic so uh, if I point them at a podcast with three topics they're like uh, I just sat through two of these to get to what I wanted to listen to give me a break so today's topic is going to be uh, wiki voyage which is a cool little wiki project uh, from the um, <coughs> Wikimedia uh, open source group. Um, the same people who bring you uh, Wikipedia and about a hundred other different projects you've never heard of. Well, this came about as a fork of Wiki Travel. And Wiki Voyage is basically a tour guide, and um, <clears throat> it's uh, it's a wiki, so you can edit it. I mean, it's very basic, but it has some advantages because, for one, everyone can edit it, and um, that's kind of nice. And you can use it to um, put in historical items, but also give them deep, deep linking. So if you put in a monument and say, okay, well, here's some monuments in this city or this area of the city that you're describing, like things to see. Then if you have like, you know, video or audio of that, you can put that on the commons. So Wikimedia Commons can store all of your video. Now I have to say, there's a caveat to all of this, right? First of all, if you put anything onto these systems, you have to own it. It has to be your original work, or you have to have permission of the author. And second of all, you have to license it for reuse and editing. So that means um, you're going to lose control of your work, so to say, you'll still retain copyright, but you're granting people under Creative Commons the ability to create derived works from it, meaning that you'll just become part of the collective commons. Um, so that's important to understand. But it's a good trade-off because, well, frankly, um, if you put a picture onto Wikimedia Commons, it generally gets very good Google hits. I'll tell you a little story. I lived in Topeka, Kansas for a couple of years. And I come from this uh, whole, you know, Wikipedia background. I've been promoting it. So I go to Kansas and I start promoting it there. And I'm going around taking pictures and I upload them to Wiki uh, Commons. And I'm on this Facebook group with a bunch of guys. Um, And I guess the thing that I realize now, um, and I didn't realize then, it's just that a lot of people don't dive super deep into things. Just like I don't dive super deep into, I don't know, baseball or basketball. And some people just don't dive deep into all this computing stuff. And um, even if they're in the computing industry, and they're not into the whole open source thing, or they don't care about it, all that. And I never really realized that. Like, I always made a stupid assumption that everyone is, like, so hardcore, deep into things like me, or willing to do the research and work and the effort, put in the effort to, you know, get inside of it. But that's just growing up, I guess. So... <clears throat> The guy uh, posts or changes his Facebook picture 
to uh, my picture that I just posted on um, on Wikimedia Commons. I said, hey, that's my picture. Um, you know? And the guy's like, oh, well, I just Googled it. And it was like one of the first hits, so I took it. So normally he'd have to, according to the rules of copyright, he's not allowed to copy your text or your pictures unless he gets licensed. And the only license that I granted was the license through Wikipedia, which says that he has to attribute to me where he got the picture from and say, you know, it was from user blah, blah, blah from via Wikipedia. Maybe here's a link. Well, he didn't do that. So he, technically he was in copyright violation, but he didn't care. And it doesn't matter. The point I'm trying to make is if you put a picture onto Wikimedia Commons, the chances of someone randomly finding it increases greatly because that content is also very well indexed and mostly available on the Googles. So I digress. So if you put your, uh, your article about some place, like some city, or some section of the city, you can also create a subsection in history and say, okay, well, this is the history of what happened in the 1800s here. Like, here are some places you can visit. Now, that's also interesting for the Wikipedia article. And you can write the history inside of the pictures in comments. So there's nothing wrong with actually like posting a historical picture, putting some information about the history of that picture, putting links to the articles and relevant things, and then, but also containing the text there. You know, trying to, trying to put a lot of information inside of the Wikipedia, encyclopedia side of things, a lot of it might get edited out and cut down. Same with Wikivoyage. Um, but there's also Wiki Archive or Wikisource for actually um, sort raw source material that's out of copyright, like ancient texts and stuff like that. And if you can't fit it inside of any of those projects, there's always archive.org, which gives you basically unlimited free storage with no questions asked. Like if you just want to archive some stuff, and you've got gigabytes of data you just want to put somewhere, archive.org is a great project to do that. And you can make a little library card about what's in there, and you can do all types of stuff, and then you can reference that in other projects. So I went ahead... <coughs> um, I've done some tours of uh, Trenton, downtown, pictures of buildings, and um, I geotagged them, and I created, uh, this is in comments now, I put uh, entries for like the street name, and what the building is, and so forth. That's on commons, you can do all that type of stuff. And then, um, yeah, an open street map is a great project, which is related to all this, where you can actually edit the map. And you can put in monuments, points of interest, um, basically anything that's persistent. I had a discussion recently, and you can find it on one of my previous podcasts about graffiti. If tag, uh, graffiti tags could be put into OpenStreetMap, and basically they can't because they're not considered to be permanent. If it was a permanent art installation or like a famous graffiti or something that's going to be staying. And yes, now I think that is kind of a... Um, a value judgment, but uh, graffiti can definitely be put onto commons, and it can be geotagged. And um, <clears throat> I think uh, that we could have an entry in the we could have an entry in the um, OpenStreetMap that graffiti was there at this time. But even if you don't put it into OpenStreetMap as a, as, a, as a point of interest, you can definitely create your own map using OpenStreetMap data and using the pictures on commons 
and you can create an interactive map pretty easily with all the pictures and say, okay, well, here's all the graffiti um, pictures that we took, and here's a map of them. And uh, that's pretty easy to create an interactive map. So that's definitely something that can be uh, implemented, for example. And you can implement maps with pictures and points of interest uh, for all different topics. And if they're permanent, you can have them permanently installed into OpenStreetMap. If they're not permanent, we can create maps outside of OpenStreetMap using the same technology, but store the data somewhere else. Look at these baby deer. And um, so you have centralized and decentralized data stores. And there's alternatives to all these different things. So it's not just, you know, the one project. There's also other projects. Okay, so let's go back to Wiki Voyage. So I went ahead and I created like a... Um, a wiki voyage entry for Ewing, New Jersey, where I live. And I talk about like all the different places I like to go to eat, places I like to go to shop, things that you can do. And it also talks about things to do in the region. <clears throat> you can link to the other cities around it. Um, I've been recording trails, for example, like I do a lot of walking. Um, so I've been recording like where you can cut through the woods, and I also put that there. Um, now those can be recorded in OpenStreetMap. What well, have been like as a trail or a track if they exist, if they physically exist, or they're actually used or possible, you can record it. <clears throat> you can also upload your GPS tracks into OpenStreetMap and share them, or you can put them anonymously. Um, you can include timestamps and connections between the points or not. Um, so that's kind of cool. And there's a lot of options. Um, so what this area needs, because already the streets are basically covered, but what are not done are the uh, house numbers and the uh, building outlines. So I've been doing uh, that for uh, my area. Now there's parcel data available for New Jersey. And uh, basically we can get the parcel data, which says the outlines of the properties and the house numbers. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's definitely possible to extract. Um, and I have tools for transforming that, so eventually I guess we could use that for doing the house numbers. Now the building outlines, it is a lot of work to do that. And I've been considering whether or not we can use some kind of machine learning, etc., for automatically recognizing uh, building outlines and tracing them from the photo imagery. But basically you have the photo imagery from Bing available to you for tracing. And anyway, it's a lot of fun. It's a relaxing thing to do. And, um, you know, when I played Pokemon Go, I would look at the map, and half of the place where I live was all traced out with buildings, and the other half wasn't, because I didn't do it. And um, I could say, hey, that's my work that I did. And look, it's in Pokemon Go, because OpenStreetMap is being used all over the place. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, and if you had a particular historical topic, um, and I'm targeting this podcast as a, uh, a pod, uh, someone who I met through a podcasting system, I wanted to give them some ideas. Uh, if, you're, if you're targeting, let's say, a certain group of people or a certain historical aspect of time... Sorry, I'm on the main street here. I'll have to get onto a side street in a second. Um... I'm sure that you could create a, a page for that in Wiki Voyage, like as a project page, if there's not one already, and then um, create like uh, 
different type of uh, templates and sections that you can include into different cities and say, okay, well, here's the history, here's uh, some historical stuff from World War II in this city. Here is like a relevant building or so, so and so forth as a section with templates. Um, I'm pretty sure that's uh, possible in Wiki Voyage. I haven't done that, but I know that in Wikipedia they have wiki projects and they have different templates and so forth. So I definitely think that would be possible. So uh, <clears throat> now let's talk about the uh, pedagogical, pedagogical, or learning um, benefits. So. I find, since I started mapping and just editing map, even just tracing buildings and thinking about the geography and thinking about the area that I'm around, and I start building the map in my head because they, it kind of becomes your map. If you start editing it, you start taking ownership of the map, and you're like, oh, this is my map. You know, it's not just some other person's map. It's actually one that I contributed to. So <clears throat> that's a... Um, that's a great way to learn and to internalize uh, the mapping and uh, to uh, learn to become part of it and your actual navigation skills will become better once you start thinking about mapping and becoming a mapper I think because you start being aware of these things you're thinking well how would I tag that or how would I enter that into OpenStreetMap so um I think for young people or any people at all who want to learn, it is a, a great uh, project to get involved with. And I can only suggest that everybody just spend some time and register on OpenStreetMap and get a uh, and just get a, an account and do some tutorials and maybe um, edit. You know, put in some opening hours for some your favorite bakery. Or, you know, um, make sure that, uh, make sure that the buildings are, that you're interested in are traced properly, that they look good, that everything is correct. You know, I stopped importing data. There's this thing called, like, Tiger, where they imported a lot of streets from, like, some government database and it imported a lot of junk. So you'll see, like, phantom roads. Um, that some algorithm produced. Uh, and even if you use machine learning, you're still going to need people to, like, validate it. <clears throat> because in the end, it's just going to be part of the solution. So, um, you can go in and look at stuff that's marked as tiger, unreviewed, and that the street is just in the middle of nowhere, you can remove it or, uh, you know, shift it. Sometimes they're just, uh, <coughs> man, the pollen here. Sometimes they're just, um, uh, sidewalk, uh, sidewalks like, uh, driveways that got, uh, tagged. Oh, by the way, this is my morning walk. This is why I record my podcast. That's why I have, like, all that noise in the background. <clears throat> it's kind of the thing that I do. So, um, yeah, so driveways are sometimes uh, tagged as roads. So you can just remove that uh, highway equals like tertiary or secondary and just say highway equals service. That's like a, um, then you can like say like service equals, I think it's driveway or something. And then we'll tag it. And there's nice editors. I use the JOSM editor, which is the Java OpenStreetMap editor, which is really nice. But you can edit right in the web page. <clears throat> it's a lot of fun. It's relaxing. And I would teach uh, kids how to do this if, you, if anyone wants to do like a, a Zoom. I use Jitsi, which is the open source Zoom. 
um, like a webinar, this big blue button that uh, one group Flosk runs. I guess we could ask them if we could do a, uh, if we could use their uh, server. So, I think uh, definitely uh, it's something great for uh, teaching and learning and sharing. So if, okay, so let's talk about motivation. So, um, prizes are good. There's, um, and just any kind of community action, like, like some kind of like organized community action. So there was like, there's this great, uh, Wikimedia Commons has like a, uh, photo of the year or photo of the day. And, um, you can submit your picture to be uh, considered as a, uh, a quality picture or a, uh, a valuable picture. There's different like certificates that you can get, but if you like photography, you know, taking good pictures and submitting them to Wikipedia, Wikimedia, Wikimedia Commons um, for review. And there's this um, yearly uh, events where they have like contests for like the best picture. Wiki loves monuments. Wiki loves Earth, etc. And um, if you've got a particular topic, uh, you can make your own project. There's no one saying that you can't. And uh, you can come up with your own prizes. Um, and you can ask people to contribute. And you can even say, you know, we have, we're asking for contributions in OpenStreetMap, in Wikivoyage, in Commons, and in Wikipedia. And we'll have separate prizes for entries in all three of those. For example and have an overarching project. There's like overarching projects um, as well. There's like a wiki, a meta wiki or something like that. So all of that is possible. Um, I just want to outline some of these possibilities and offer myself as a uh, consultant to help make people aware that this is available. And it's a very rewarding uh, project. You get good publicity and you learn a lot, you meet some good people, and also you get help because um, um, you know there's also a great community. Okay, there's, all, there's also a bunch of trolls and um, idiots uh, and nasty people, and for beginners it might also be tough to have your stuff deleted or, you know, blah, 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 but um, if you uh, have a mentor or guide to help you through the first phase and getting, you know, getting your feet wet, uh, it's a very rewarding and you're going to get positive feedback. And um, <clears throat> I think it's great uh, for education. So yeah, uh, I hope uh, you guys consider this. Uh, for multiple topics, whatever your, your topic of interest is, um, you'll find some way to make a contribution and also to get something back. You know, what you get back is uh, free hosting. You get uh, also curation and it's more than just free hosting and curation. If you get your stuff into a Wikipedia type project, then it's going to live for a long time, and um, people are going to, to adopt it. Like, I started some random article, like, many years ago um, on Wikipedia, and now it's turned into this humongous thing. So if you plant the seeds, they'll grow. And um, it's great to watch to see the the interaction. Now, if you get into like a topic that is fringe or contested, and let's say you don't have the majority viewpoint, then um, your experience on Wikipedia is going to be uh, very negative. So you need to also consider <clears throat> that uh, you don't want to do controversial topics. Um, and if you do, you probably want to either create your own wiki, 
uh, or talk to me about it, but, uh, you know, if you're trying to go against the grain, against the mass and the mainstream in the Wikipedia projects, especially Wikipedia, you're going to have a problem because Wikipedia is basically the mainstream of whatever. And I have topic, I've talked about that on previous podcasts and, uh, you know, um, but as long as you don't have a problem with the mainstream bias of things, um, it's going to be great. And if you want to, uh, you know, express a, uh, dissident or a different point of view, then actually Wikipedia is not going to be the right one. But as I said, there's options for that. You're going to have to want to create your own wiki or something else to handle that. So, and, and, and I would look because maybe uh, for your particular topic, you'll find someone already out there who's done it. All right. Well, I think this is good enough uh, for an overview or an introduction. And if anyone's interested in uh, learning more about this topic, just give me a holler. And um, I'm more than willing to help everybody uh, get started to do uh, or find someone to help you get started because maybe I'm not the best person, but I might know someone who's better than me. Um, you know, we've we've created a Wikipedia, uh, wiki edit-thons, we've done, uh, I mean, people have done, I mean, I've been involved with OpenStreetMap edit-thons, you know, where you get people together and you edit some topic, um, there's, like, humanitarian response on OpenStreetMap to, like, disasters, that's really, uh, where you can help out as well, um, there's all types of projects, and if you think that you have a project that could get people motivated to work on it, then, you know, um, that would be something that would definitely, you know, get you, get traction. And you'll find people jumping on from all over the place. And uh, it's funny, because the Germans, I lived in Germany for a long time, and the Germans have a, an overeducated society where a lot of people are super educated, and um, they got a lot of time on their hands as well. And there's a lot, there's an incredible OpenStreetMap community, incredible Wikipedia community. And you can see, like, Berlin. If you ever want to see a, a map of a city that's just totally over-detailed, go to Hamburg or Berlin, Germany. And just look what they did there. Like, every single fire hydrant, every single garbage can, every single security camera, it's all mapped out to the nth degree. You know, every single building, it's just incredible in the amount of detail. Yeah, I also did a lot of editing in Berlin when I lived there for a while. <clears throat> All right, guys. I hope uh, you enjoyed my uh, little spiel here, and I'll talk to you hopefully soon. Bye-bye. Let's see if we can turn this thing off.